Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and in today's episode, episode number 20, I'll be talking with Drew Graham. These days, Drew works mostly in the world of fintech. Uh, he's held senior digital strategy roles at a number of international banks, including Barclays and Standard Chartered. He's also led startups in South Asia, focusing on things as diverse as rural education through to microfinancing. Um, and he's also worked with oil and gas companies. I've known Drew for a number of years. Um, I always find he has a really fascinating perspective whenever we talk about work and compare notes between our respective industries. And I was interested to explore with him how similar the finance and cultural sectors might be um, and his perspective on how the cultural sector could harness the potential that I believe is offered by all the digital change we've seen over recent years. Enjoy. So uh, this is this is quite fun. I think you know I've interviewed uh, interviewed I've chatted with people who I know on a number of these, but. We're actually friends. Yes, indeed. That makes it sound like I've only interviewed my enemies so far. Well, if I was one of the person you'd previously interviewed, I'd be going, wait, hey, I thought you said we were friends. People listening to this mostly work in the art sector, I think, uh, certainly based on conversations I've had with people who have listened to this, might be wondering, why am I talking to someone who has, you know, worked in, in, in startups focused on... Um, you know, rural education and has then, you know, also worked in connectivity for oil and gas and has worked in zip lines and has worked in fintech in sort of big finance. And I think to answer that question is, you know, I'm often struck that so many of the conversations that you and I have is about trying to answer what is ultimately the same sort of question, especially with the work you're doing um, or that you've done over the past, say, five years in in finance. And that is sort of working within legacy institutions, you know, institutions who existed long before the sort of, you know, digital revolution, who have their roots very much in old-fashioned ways of working, um, to sort of challenge, in, you know, our role is often to, to challenge those entrenched ways of, of thinking, um, to respond to the world, you know, the world that is radically changing, um, you know, user, customer, audience expectations are radically changing. Um, it feels like the last 15 months of, of pandemic has, for many people, sort of crystallized that change in the most tangible version of it. You know, it's something that you and I and others like us have been talking about for the last 20 years but it was perhaps possible to ignore mm. that, that things had changed, things that had been a paradigm shift in the way that the world worked, people's expectations of institutions, regardless of whether that's finance or culture, um, and how those institutions were, were sort of responding. I'd love to get your, your take on that. You know, am, am, I, am, I, am I on the money there? You know, are there similarities actually between finance and culture in those terms i hope that we can discover this during the during the course of this podcast uh my starting hypothesis is yes just because we spend a lot of time 
very shoutily agreeing with each other whenever we start talking about our respective work. And it does seem that we end up trying to do exactly the same thing. Um, maybe the best I can do is you know, like talk about uh, some of the things I see in finance, and, and then you can hop up and down in your seat and agree with me uh, when I hit on something that's the same in your industry as well. But we've spoken a lot about um, this idea that the, the, our respective industries need to uh, fundamentally change to be able to be fit for the present day. And I think that this is true of our two industries, and I think it's interesting that both the arts and finance are going through this at the same time. And one of my um, uh, favorite little ditties that I come up with in order to offend pompous overpaid bankers is that like, software has destroyed and remade many industries. It did it with transport, it's done it with travel, it's done it with media, it's done it with advertising. Media breaks down obviously into video, music, and now it is doing it with finance. And the problem is that people who work in banks, people who work in finance, are used to being the masters of the universe. They're used to being the place where everybody wants to go and work, where everybody makes all of the biggest money, where they get to kind of dictate what the world looks like. And they therefore think that they're special and they're different and they're not. They're just next and they don't know it. And it's delightful to work in this industry without ever actually feeling part of it and be able to, in uh, with uh, with both good graces and with the best intentions, try and give these pompous, overpaid, and generally reasonably unintelligent bankers the opportunity to see that they're going through the same thing that all of these other industries went through. Give them the opportunity to change, because if you were to make me the chairman or the CEO of a large bank, I genuinely think I could have a good shot at doing it. Um, and then take, uh, an, uh, I don't hide this at all, a reasonable amount of delight in this degree of overpaid pompous arrogance trumping any realisation that they actually need to go through change. But we've talked about this in the arts, and I don't think you would ever describe your customers in the similar ways to the ways that I describe my, my colleagues and my erstwhile colleagues. But there is this idea that there is uh, there's industries that think that they're different and they're not, they're just next. Yeah, and actually that point you made, you know, listing off all of the, the industries that have been irrevocably remade yeah. by digital, you know, you could carry on the list, you know, healthcare, you know, socially, even... even the, parts of fabric of society social interaction you know learning all of these things have been broken down unbundled remade in a new form um and i i i wrote so i wrote an article about 10 years ago that, that said exactly that you know what makes any of us think that culture is special or different or the exception to this mm. tide and I think, you know, when we were talking prior prior to today and you sort of, you, you talked about the ven of apathy and arrogance. Yes. And I think that that does exist in the, in, the, in the cultural sector when it comes to engaging with this existential threat slash opportunity, but mostly threat at the moment of digital transformation, however you want to sort of define that. Because, you know, 
people in the arts will point to the fact that, you know, theatre as an art form or music as an art form is thousands of years old mm -hmm. and it's lasted for thousands of years. Banking is thousands of years old. <laughs> it has lasted for thousands of years. And why should we uh, worry too much about innovations in broader society? I'm sh you know, there will still be, there is a, a fundamental human need to connect with each other and, you know, for inspiration and for enjoyment mm -hmm. and for reflection. And so therefore we as the cultural sector will always have a role to play no matter how many um you know jetpacks and hoverboards and you know vr Absolutely. and whatever money is the central tenant of our economy it is what binds us all together it is the engine that drives all of us it isn't going away and as a finance company as a bank we have a if not god then certainly regulatory given right to exist and to continue to make money Although, and I don't know whether you can find a parallel with this in the arts, in retail banking uh, over the last few years, uh, especially given, um, uh, given the pandemic, but very much before then, you do not make money out of retail banking as it existed for the last few hundred years anymore. You, you just have to look at the public results of any retail bank in a developed economy that doesn't have an investment bank on its side, and uh, Barclays uh, does. I was going to say did, but no, they do. Uh, Barclays does, and so therefore, like there is a bit of a counter-cyclical thing there, but if you're just a pure, pure play retail bank with no interest rates, you don't make money anymore. And I think it comes down to something that maybe we can find a parallel in the arts here, which is that the cost to serve a customer in the old paradigm is between one and two orders of magnitude greater for an incumbent bank than it is somebody who has built something from scratch and uh, coming at a, your industry from a position of uh, amateur enthusiasm here. But I would imagine the cost to serve somebody coming to a, a theater and sitting down and actually watching a play is one to two orders of magnitude greater than the cost to serve a Netflix, Netflix subscriber. And I think we see a similar dynamic playing out where, fine, you can serve at 5% the cost, but it's not the same experience. And, and people still want to go to a bank branch. People still want to go to the theatre. People still want the human experience. People know they fucking don't. They don't anymore. And that's not where the revenue is anymore. And if you don't change, then something is going to come and eat you, probably Netflix in this instance, and something is going to come and eat the retail bank as well. On that uh, impetus <laughs> to change and how our sectors are responding to it, you know, on on these in these conversations with others, uh, we've spoken a lot about leadership in in the sector and sort of how, specifically in the cultural sector, there aren't a lot of digitally literate leaders, and you know there are very obvious reasons for that. Typically, leadership at arts organisations is comprised of people from a certain generation who have worked in the sector for a long time. And actually, by the time they reach positions of um, authority, they were so far away from the coalface that having to respond in a sort of operational, detail-focused way to digital change mm -hmm. wasn't something that necessarily came across their desk in a meaningful way. And so therefore, when you're you know, talking about this as an existential threat, you're the people who most urgently need to 
hear that and understand it and respond to it don't have the the vocabulary the sort of mental model to be able to perceive it as a threat and actually for those who perhaps are surrounded by you know decent leadership teams who can explain it in terms that are meaningful to them they realize that the level of change required to meet this threat head on and turn it into an opportunity mm-hmm. is a paradigm shift and so therefore it's far easier to do nothing than it is to do something very very difficult and big and (laughs) the short answer to this may be yes is that the same in in the finance sector yes (laughs) um i have something i call the banker's equation uh which is probably one of the most heretical things that i draw on a whiteboard in in room full of people in suits uh which is i put up two variables x and y Um, and i say let x be the number of years to disruption and let y be the number of years to retirement and every morning you wake up look in the mirror and at some level figure out which number is bigger and if x is bigger than y you decide to do the same thing you did yesterday and that makes you complicit in the downfall of the industry it makes you complicit in the trillions of dollars that is going to be wiped off stock market values of people's and the kind of real human people, your mother and your grandmother and their pension funds. I mean, finance is such a massive part of this industry, of, of this economy now, that if you wake up in the morning and you think about your work in that context, and this is kind of a problem specific to finance in the way that we earn so much fucking money. Like, it is sickening the amount of money that people in the industry who spent 5, 10, 15 years being mediocre can earn. And how much of that is weighted towards a bonus, which itself is pegged towards what your quarterly results mean, that there is no incentive, no individual incentive to actually rock the boat or accept that there is a new paradigm. Now, kind of the arts and, and, and culture industry is is renowned for not paying the same sky-high levels as finance. So maybe the quarterly results bonus uh, driver, which I think is probably one of, the, one, of the primary, one of the three primary drivers for that Venn diagram of, uh, of ignorance and apathy. Um, oh, sorry, arrogance and apathy that I was talking about before. But the rest of it, I think, must still exist because exactly as you've said, once you get to a certain level in an organization, you have got there based on a skill set which is in many situations antithetical to the skill set that you need to be able to change the organization to meet the challenge that exists in in the future. And I and again we go back to all of the industries we named before and how it's playing out in those industries. It's true in all of those industries. And I think one of the reasons for that is kind of a fundamental Um, acceleration of the rate of change in the whole world. So it's not just that uh, change is constant, yes. Change is constant and accelerating. And that means that when you had a 30, 40-year career before, in our our parents' time perhaps, but certainly any time before then, the skill set that you needed when you were in your late 20s and climbing up the middle management, climbing up into middle management, is largely the same as the skill set you needed in your late 50s in senior management. Now, the skill... 
just leave in the alarm. Yeah. <laughs> warning, warning. <laughs> Industry collapsing. Industry collapsing. <laughs> it's good that it doesn't just stop once and carries out in the corridor. Yeah. Um, Finance has now collapsed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the stock market market has now collapsed. <laughs> we had an alarm installed in yeah. order to alert us. That was, yes. Uh, you were saying skills needed in skills your late 20s. Um, in your late 20s were largely the same skills as you needed in your late 50s when you were in senior management running these organizations. And this just is not true anymore. And the skills that you learn in your late 20s in finance uh, to the people who are now in their late 50s running these organizations just don't apply anymore on so many different levels. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell an anecdote here, and, and uh, on reflection, I'm, I'm going to make it an anonymous anecdote. Um, but I was in conversation with the CEO of one of the 10 biggest banks in the world um, uh, a few months ago, uh, and he will remain nameless. Um, and also it is a uh, indictment on our industry that when I say he will remain nameless, it didn't narrow down the field at all, but that's a separate conversation. Um, uh, and we talked about how uh, this the organization that he ran was going to get it sliced up into tiny little bits and get served back to itself via probably Stripe, as all organizations. Um, and his response, and I give him so much credit for this, was to look at me and go, yeah, I think you're probably right. And my problem is that I don't know enough to be able to know what to do. Nobody on my board knows enough to be able to what to do. And in all honesty, Drew, you're probably one of the se most senior people in the organization who knows what to do. And he just kind of admitted this fundamental problem, which is that if you are working in one of these large organizations and you know how the world is going to turn out and you can see the future a little bit because the skill set that you developed in your late 20s and early 30s is still relevant to the, to the organization, then you are a threat to the existing structures and the existing power dynamics. And it means that you end up doing, give or take, a couple of years in an organization before you get squeezed out the bottom. Uh, hence, I've done two lots of two years in these organizations and got squeezed out the bottom. And do you have any thoughts on how that problem is addressed? You know, let's take sector specificity out of it if we can. How do you ensure that leadership across organizations, large and small, is relevant and that they have a relevant perspective and maybe not a relevant skill set, but that they at least are literate in the issues that are most pertinent as as they ru they run the company because as you as you've just said there and i'm sure you know this is true of media organizations this is true of banks this is true of any, any basically any big company they are you know uh sort of understandably enough run by people who have a certain number of years of experience however given what we've just what you've just described as us all operating in this sort of um, soup, that's <laughs> terrible. But but you know this yes. situation, quagmire, that, quagmire. Yes, but this that is, that, you know, we're operating in this in this situation where everything is changing, and that's sort of I think if people aren't comfortable with it, they're at least aware of it. 
but the most important part i think of what you said is that pace of change is accelerating yeah. and so do you have any reflections on how organizations can equip themselves is it about leadership of an organization changing every five years or at least ensuring that new people are being brought in is it is is it about organizations having better ways to accelerate the careers and the seniority of people who have shown themselves to be particularly insightful or whatever it might be because it does feel like almost regardless of sector perhaps outside of like pure product focused technology you have to have served your time before you're given the seat at the top table and by the time you've served the time the insights that you've had are stale um so i know you said sector sector agnostic so i have a finance specific answer that maybe i'll hold for the end um but uh i think my the primary view is that Everything in every organization, in every industry, comes down to individual incentives. And I think in some industries there is a um, a pure, red-blooded capitalist approach, which means that you can address the individual incentives quite directly, and finance is one of those. And I think in most other industries, uh, that isn't necessarily the case. And individual incentives become heretical or the elephant in the room, or they become things that need to be addressed tangentially. But at the end of the day, all of the things that we've been talking about so far come down to what the individual incentives are of the people who are running the organizations, notwithstanding fiduciary duty and criminal prosecution, but I still think it is all about individual incentives. And so in, uh, in any organization that's asking the question that you've just asked, I... I truly believe that the first uh, the first lens, um, the first rubric to use to be able to think about this has to be what are the individual incentives for the people at the various positions in the organization and how do we change those to be able to drive to the outcome that we have. The problem here, of course, is that the people who decide the individual incentives and they all cascade down are generally the directors of companies. And if you think that the executives of companies are technically incompetent, then you haven't met many directors yet. And so you end up in a situation where it is a kind of cyclical problem. But you do have to start with being able to actually have an honest conversation about individual incentives. And we haven't done that in finance. And I don't know, but I doubt that you've done that in the arts. Yeah, I think in the arts, perhaps in almost direct... uh, if, If you have broadly... Make the assumption that there are two motivations for work. Either mm. it's uh, it's money or it's sort of values. Mm. And I think you know finance sits squarely in the, the money part of that. And yes. the assumption is people working in culture sit squarely in the values part of that. You know, I know having worked in the cultural sector for over a decade that, of course, people are values driven. But yes. you have to create good working conditions. You have to create opportunities for growth. You have to where you can create, you know, not the best pay but fair pay. Yeah. Um, and I would assume, in to turn it around, in finance, is is there perhaps too black and white a view that go, well, if we pay them enough, then they'll be engaged and rewarded mm. and there's less of a, a focus on growth, on culture, on values? Oh, I mean, that's, that's yes, un- undoubtedly true. That um, there is, uh, nobody who works in a bank understands, especially has spent any amount of time in a bank, and especially if they work in human resources, understands the definition of what a value actually is. Um, and we can very much have that conversation if you like, but it feels a bit like a tangent. Um, 
but also the amount of money that people get paid and the amount of money moving around finance very much means that it is more about ego. It's more about the number than it is the actual money. Um, uh, and it, the closer you get to investment banking, then the more true that is. But there's definitely a complete absence of value as a trade-off to the financial side of things. But equally, uh, to your point, that there's there is a, uh, and I agree, there is a far bigger impetus for values in uh, in the arts. But the people still have mortgages and kids, you know. Both of those are expensive. And uh, if somebody doesn't have a mortgage and doesn't have a kid, then they can generally take a, and like there was others in that category, and kind of long-term care responsibilities, long-term health issues. I mean, there is, a, there is a bucket of things that mean that people have to think about their risk appetite um, in a particular timeline. And this is true in finance, and I would imagine it's in true in the arts as well. But when you get to a certain stage and you have a couple of kids in school, uh, not that I have, and you have a mortgage, not that I have, and you know you have long-term health issues, which I do, um, you ha have a different personal appetite to risk. And what we're really talking about when we talk about digital transformation or software eating in industry is put people's personal ap attitude towards risk. Uh, and this is a nice segue into the second way of answering this question, which is maybe a little bit finance-specific, but the only three things that matter for digital transformation, which I've, I've actually stopped using that as a phrase within finance now, and I'm now talking about uh, software development, because digital technology and software are different. We can, another topic. Um, but the only three things that matter in building an organization that is uh, a software organization is organizational structure, incentive design, and risk frameworks. That is it. It's not to do with hire good coders or agile or any of that crap. You've got to get those three things right. And those three things are yucky, human, analog, messy, long-term, and really, really, really difficult to get right. But if you were to be able to design the structure of the organization in a way that was led to the most optimal outcomes for the customer, which is, again, kind of what we're talking about when we talk about digital, and you are to be able to incentivize people in a way that you are focusing on the right timeline and risk balance of their incentives for the outcomes for the customer. And in a finance context, but maybe it applies slightly to, to arts as well, you are to be able to get the organization to think about risk in the right way, then you will naturally end up being a spectacular software building organization. And I don't think anybody thinks about that in the right way, because when you get to a particular level of organization, you think that being technically literate knows, is about knowing how to use Facebook or, or uh, understanding what a database is. And this is kind of in this idea of the difference between digital technology and software. Like being digitally literate means that you can uh, like message your brother on Facebook or something. Being technically literate means that you understand what a relational databases, or maybe you can use the word microservices to a consultant and have them nod or some crap like that. But understanding software is actually such an a, a intellectually deep discipline that only really if you can understand that software and the capability of building software from an organizational standpoint has got nothing to do with technology, has nothing to do with digital, and actually is a human endeavor, are you actually consider yourself to be software literate? And I have met exactly zero people in a senior position in any bank in the world, 
personally, not saying they don't exist, but I've not met them, who I would consider to be software literate, including any chief, innova uh, chief innovation officer, chief information officer, chief technology officer of any financial institution in the world. That's a lie. I can think of a few that pop into my head. So if you think you're one of them, message me on Twitter and I'll apologize. But it's really unlikely that it's you. And I think, you know, to, to that point, no, 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 no. You keep pausing whenever I pick up a <laughs> handkerchief as if I'm going to blow my nose. It's all right. I'm, I'm over this. I think, you know, to that point, because if, if you look at all of the, I guess, best software ideas of the last 10 years, it is, it is I think, three things. It is, it's a great idea mm. that has been rigorously booted about until it's the best version of that idea. Mm. And then it has been ruthlessly implemented. Mm -hmm. And it feels like even even in my sector, the, the most um, sort of digitally confident organizations are only really operating in two of those three areas at any one time. Either they're having great ideas. Yes. And then they're rushing to execute them without properly kicking them around and they never quite go anywhere. And they're just, it's just all about ideas, ideas, do, do, do. And actually we never stop to evaluate. Mm. They have great ideas and they spend ages trying to make the perfect version of that and never actually execute it because they don't have the space, resources, people, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Um, and to your point, if, come, if, we, if we're talking about redesigning our institutions, redesigning our organizations, how, how, <laughs> how do you how do, do, you do it? How do you do that? <laughs> um, so let me give you two answers. Um, let me give you, first of all, my my honest answer, which is the one that you don't want to hear and also the one that your listeners probably don't want to hear. Um, and then let me give you my, uh, you pay my paycheck and you actually need a constructive answer. Uh, one second. Um, I'm going to read you a quote by a physicist, Max Planck, um, who created the Planck constant, if you're interested in physics. Um, uh, and then I, I'm just going to pause, and then I'm going to move into the second answer, and, and, and you can deduce what I mean by reading this quote and apply it to the industry. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. This is science. This is like the foundation of everything. I think there's parallels that we can draw. To answer your question, how does an organization change? I think Max probably had it right. But now you're paying my salary and you actually need a constructive answer. Um, you've got to get to a critical mass of senior people to be able to understand that there is an existential threat. That's the first thing that you have to get them to not just understand, but also accept. Uh, in my industry, there is a great degree of intellectual dishonesty um, where people know that there is, but also they've done the banker's equation and also know that actually their individual incentives mean that they're better off by ignoring it. So first of all, you've got to get them to acknowledge there's an ex existential threat or know that there is and also acknowledge it. Uh, second of all, you have to get them to understand the difference between being a, in my context, finance company that is competent in technology and being a software company that is competent a software company that is competent in finance and those two things sound similar but they are absolutely completely different and to go back to my 
uh, analogy earlier, um, there was a few conventional financial services companies that you could reasonably describe as being financial services companies that are competent in technology. And then uh, I would describe Stripe as a software company that is competent in finance. And when it comes down to uh, the fight, which effectively is, is what it is nowadays, because they both operate in almost exactly the same space, um, uh, there's one company that I'm long and there's a group of companies that I'm short in my in my industry parlance. So first of all, get them to acknowledge it. Um, second of all, get them to understand the difference between those two things. And I think if you can do those two, then you have the ingredients to be able to actually talk about what it is that you need to do about it. But for all of the reasons we've already discussed, those two things are incredibly hard to do because of, in the first instance, individual incentives, and from the second instance is an accelerating rate of change. And so I've tried over the last five years, a range of tactics of getting people to do this. Um, and I've ended up with a framework which uh, applies, which I, I, I'm not going to say has been roaringly successful, but has been reasonably successful, which is that each of those two things then needs three separate tactics, which is uh, a money, in my industry, a money tactic, a business tactic, and a risk tactic. Uh, so the money person, the CFO, you've got to explain it to them in their language. The business person, stroke technical person, you have to explain those two things to them in their language. And the risk person, you have to do it as well. And so you end up having to have six weapons in your armory. Um, and, then, uh, and then you just got to go at it um, in my industry. Uh, getting the right people and then putting them in a room with these tech companies is incredibly successful. The tech companies, are, the CEOs of the big tech companies are very willing to engage with very senior people in finance for this, exactly the same reason uh, that, uh, well, I can't think of an analogy, but for the reason that they feel no fear, like they're showing off, like they're perfectly willing to sit down and go, I'm, I've spent a, a bit of time talking to people who, uh, worked very early at, started at Monzo, and uh, whilst I was working at large organisations. Um, and they're very happy to sit down and show me their product roadmap, like not with any like confidentiality in mind. And they would say to me, well, what are you going to do? We can ship software 10 times faster than you can, so we show you our product roadmap, you take it back, which we know you're not going to do, but you take it back and then that becomes the incumbent's product roadmap, then all we've done is we've tied up 10 times more resources from you trying to copy something that we're going to ship 10 times quicker. We win. So this is all to say, to answer your question, uh, you kind of got to have a game plan that applies to your particular company and your particular industry. But a rule of thumb here has got to be get them to acknowledge the problem get them to acknowledge that the solution has to look like a particular thing and categorize the different types of people that you need to be able to convince of that. Thank you. That's and okay. A, a, a slight, a, uh, not a tangent, because it's, it's very much, but, you know, if we, if we, if I sort of hypothetically wound forward, I don't know, a year or two, maybe not even that long, and in fact, it's happening all around us at the moment, but, you know, the role of the cultural institution has perhaps been, uh, challenged is, is the wrong word but over the past 15 months of you know cultural institutions not being able to welcome physical mm -hmm. audiences the 
the role of the cultural institution has changed, you know, as, as so many other things have. And the sort of traditional role of the institution as curator, gatekeeper, platform isn't as, you know, there, there are other ways that artists, creators can go essentially direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not reliant or dependent on the sort of production capacity, the commercial capacity, the audience gathering capability of of cultural institutions in the same way. And I suppose there's there's an interesting question there is if if we continue to see change in that direction, and maybe the past year has sort of set events in motion that are not going to reverse what what role you know to your point there about organizations thinking about redefining themselves and thinking about redesigning themselves redesigning the role of the cultural institution in that new artist audience relationship Mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on what that might look like and i guess specific well I'll let you answer the question first. It's a truism for which I don't have a intellectual model to substantiate that software has not solved discoverability. Um, it, it arguably has destroyed discoverability in many ways. Um, there's a, a venture capitalist uh, turned, well, I think he still is a venture capitalist, but he's left his, his erstwhile employer, uh, called Ben Evans, Benedict Evans, um, who... Uh, describes Amazon uh, or not as a company with infinite shelf space, but as a company with one infinitely long shelf. The idea being that uh, they can stock anything they want, but you go to Amazon.com and you search for whatever it is that you're looking for, and it is delivered in exactly the same methodology. And I think that that is a pure representation of the truism that software has not solved discoverability. And the cultural institutions, the value that they are able to bring to that power, uh, that, that dynamic between artist directly to consumer is the discoverability element of it. And I think we're starting, exactly, I agree with you, we're starting to see a creative economy emerge in my industry's parlance around um, these direct-to-consumer relationships. And uh, they naturally form around kind of fractal or fractal uh, groups of people um, that uh, discover uh, similar artists through their own external social networks, Um, like very often real social networks or whatever it is. And there was a very organic element to that. And in the early stages of this, that works. Um, And we are in the early stages of of, of this, but I, I agree with you, I don't see it going away. But you get to a stage where that all falls down. Like when... If you, if you, the uh, uh, I can't remember the curve about early adopters and late majority and early majority. There's a name for the curve, but the uh, adoption curve that we probably all know now that I've described it, we're kind of at the beginning of that at the moment. And when we start to chew through the more vertical end of the curve, um, that falls down. And so the role of a cultural institution for discoverability, I would argue, becomes far more important there because you're able to gather your tribe based on uh, an existing 
similarity of their particular interests based on their affiliation with a particular cultural institution. So they end up coming back into being a gatekeeper when we get into um, a faster acceleration of uh, of adoption of this idea of going direct to consumer. So I think that there's, uh, again, escape to where the puck is going. I don't know that the answer is necessarily try and build for the paradigm that we see developing now, but these things develop in the same way in the same industry. We've talked about that before today. And so you kind of know where this is going. So put a pin in the map in 15, 18 months' time and then build for that and end up uh, end up capitalizing on the swing back to centralized discoverability. Yeah, and I think you know that observation about discoverability being the lost part of this, you know, you can you can access anything any any piece of culture in the world ever in some form or another on the internet. Um where do you start? How do you know about the things you don't know about? How do you know about the things that you may not know you like? And it's been interesting to see how platforms um digital platforms are starting to address that you know spotify has their discover weekly algorithm um netflix has just introduced the sort of i can't be bothered to look at your giant you know uh library of hundreds of thousands of titles just play something for me you know when, when we were talking before you said you asked the question who is the spotify of of theater mm. um and you also said the Spotify, the Spotify of finance probably won't be an incumbent. No. Is your perspective that that is true across all sectors, that they are normally disrupted from outside? Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to the first thing we talked about, like your industry isn't special, it's just next. And if you do the math of or do the... Uh, do the research of what happened to these other industries that we name-checked, such as uh, advertising media, uh, and you look at the total market cap of the companies, the total amount of money that's up for play, the total market cap increased substantially uh, after the disruption happened than before, but the five-firm concentration ratio, or the, the number of companies who had, or three-firm concentration ratio, the number of companies who have uh, a significant stake of that, uh, went up considerably. And so you end up in a situation where like two things are true. Number one, the pie is bigger. And number two, there's unless you are one of the biggest players, that there is a smaller slice for you. And uh, the uh, I think that in the first dot-com boom and the second dot-com boom, which uh, we're, we're probably coming to the peak of uh, any day now, maybe that's what the alarm was, uh, it was almost forgivable that you ended up having your lunch eaten by somebody else. Like, there wasn't a playbook. You didn't know how this was going to happen. Um, and so the fact that Google ended up taking advertising and that Uber destroyed taxis and that travel agents uh, are now being replaced by websites, you can kind of look back in hindsight and go, all right, fine. Like, you didn't know any better. Um, I don't think there's an excuse nowadays. I think that finance has got a degree of masters of the universe arrogance syndrome that I don't think is probably pre- present in the arts, but maybe the arts has got similar things that aren't present in finance. But I don't know that there's necessarily an excuse for the Spotify of culture not to be an existing organization. Uh, we talked about, earlier you talked about learning and healthcare as kind of two other industries that are going through this. 
again, I don't think that there's an excuse for either learning or healthcare to end up being owned by a non-incumbent in those areas. Like we're just starting to chew into those two industries now as, as software. Um, we're far more developed in finance, and I'd argue we're far more developed in arts and the culture as well. And so I'd like to see that there is a like a swing where the incumbents start to look at the last 15 years of history, realize there is a playbook that they just need to execute to be able to be one of the winners and actually put their advantage that they have um, into play and be able to come out as a winner. So I, to, un to answer your, your, your question, do I think it's going to be incumbent? The, it's not going to be an incumbent bank that ends up being the Spotify of finance, but I do actually think it could be an incumbent institution that ends up being the Spotify of the culture or the arts. And, you know, I guess taking that point, in the arts is quite good at telling itself that, you know, good, innovative, cutting-edge stuff can't necessarily come out of the arts, particularly in a sort of technological, digital context, because... The, the money isn't there you know the investment isn't there you know you, if you talked about if there was that probably if there was that business opportunity in finance you'd be able to rustle up a large pile of money to get people to invest in it that is less readily the case in the cultural sector because the financial return isn't as obviously there because historic funding model and the way that money moves into and through the sector is very different from a more transactional sector that's probably changing but historically, that has certainly been the case. That being said, you know, you've worked on budget on projects with with tight budgets, with almost no budget. You've worked equally on projects that we've spoken about that apparently have an unlimited budget. Yeah. And you know, is there a, is there a common factor around projects where good stuff happens? And is that money? Um, if if it isn't money, then then what are your sort of observations on that? If you know to the to the last um, question, if there is an an institution in the cultural sector that has had the light bulb moment, has been able to plot the point in eighteen months, twenty four months of where they need to be, mm -hmm. but then then, you know, if it if it isn't money that's going to make that happen, what what are the things that need to be drawn together in order to be able to capitalize on those opportunities? Um, you're right I've worked on both projects with gigantic budgets uh, and also with very small budgets and uh, as has happened in the last couple of times I've been given an opportunity to actually uh, execute on a project um, I've ended up uh, refusing to accept a higher budget I've been asking for less money not more money because the ability to do digital, the ability to do software, actually is not dependent on the amount of money that you have. Uh, in reality, if you look at the origins of most software companies, tech stroke software companies that we know nowadays, um, they started and got to a stage of um, likely success on somewhere in terms of a budget of either a large or a decent sized arts organization or a bank of approximately a rounding error and the ability to like now in the olden days like servers were expensive bandwidth was expensive very few people knew how to do coding uh, and uh, all of the software on top of 
the servers and the bandwidth was expensive and trying to do anything on the internet was expensive. Nowadays, uh, soft, uh, hosting is either linearly scalable to your growth or effectively free until you get to a certain stage. Uh, you just need to walk around Shoreditch and spit and hit three people that can code. Uh, and the software on top of it nowadays is entirely open source. And so the actual money thing, like where do you spend it? And if you're giving it to the consultants, the EYs, Deloitte's, Accenture's, uh, and there's another one, I can't remember the name yeah, of them. Thank you very much. Uh, then that's where the money goes. But all you're giving it to is the people that you would hit if you spat in Shoreditch uh, who are just wearing a tie. And that's where the money goes. It goes back into these gigantic machinations of organizations that don't actually add any value onto it, but are just hiring the people that know how to do it. So to answer your question directly, um, uh, if it's not money, what is it? Um, it is depending on going on it's the three things I talked about before, organizational structure, incentive design, and risk frameworks. But what does that actually come down to in terms of like expenditure of resources? It's time, and it's a degree of money to be able to bring in experience. So you need people who have done it before, which is distinctly different from who know how to do it. You need people who have done it before, and you need to give it uh, a significant amount of time because the things that you have to get right, structuring the organization, figuring out the incentives, uh, however your risk applies or risk tolerance applies to a particular industry, uh, these things take time. Uh, nine women can't make a baby in a month is like the software paradigm of like some things just take time. But this also takes a significant commitment of time to be able to get to the stage where you've built the organization that is then able to build the software. Uh, something we talked about a moment ago as well is applicable here, I think, is that um, you said that kind of uh, finance and arts are at the opposite ends of this paradigm of one is just focused on money and the other one has got a more values-driven activity. And yes, that's true, but there is also a generational aspect to this. The kind of the age of the people that are going to be building the software don't want to go and work for banks because they're big and they're evil and they're destroying the world. They would rather go and work for an organization that fits with their, their values and their purpose, and purpose now becomes an issue. And so the culture and the arts industry now has an opportunity which I, don't, I haven't seen, but I don't know, you can probably confirm or deny. I don't think it's realized that it has this power now where you take a group of spectacular software developers who are given the opportunity of going going and earning. I mean, a starting salary at Facebook's now is about, what, 250 a year, 250,000 US a year, starting salary for a 23-year-old. Like, you look at that and you go, how the hell can we compete with that? Well, I'm sorry, but most, uh, most people at that age now don't want to go and work for Facebook because Facebook is also evil in destroying the world. If Facebook can finance over there, they would rather go and do something that allows them to sleep at night and actually fits with their sense of purpose. And if the arts and the culture sector isn't that, then what is it? So fine, you're going to have to pay for the software developers to be able to build the software. But if you give them an environment where they're able to actually work in an autonomous way, where they're able to work in a way that gives them uh, feedback on their activities and they're actually able to see the fruits of their labor, then if you pay them a fair salary, then the discount based on what Facebook would pay can be absolutely gigantic. But you have to do all of that ugly, yucky organizational structure, incentive design, risk tolerance work first in order to create the environment to go and hire the people to go and build the software. 
But to answer your question, it's it really it really is not about money. Yeah, and it feels like. You know, for people that have been listening, they probably go oh, a, bit, a bit doom and gloom. The writing in big red letters on the wall that that everything is is failing and you're, you're all screwed. But I feel like here we have arrived at the, uh, you know, at a moment of hope. I think because yes. I think to your to your point that you have to create the environment and then bring the people in. Is it feels like perhaps too often? I don't know if this is the case in finance, but certainly in culture, they brought the people in. Yes. And expected that to create the environment, yes. and then been, you know, sad and frustrated on all sides when those people haven't had a sort of clear idea of the problem they're trying to solve. They haven't had autonomy. They haven't been able to get feedback. They mm-hmm. haven't been able to get anything in front of any actual people who might be able to to tell them whether or not it's going to mm-hmm. work. And then those people leave and they go and work at Facebook for two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and the institution goes, "Oh well, you know these these." you know, technologists, they're not actually the sort of catalyst for positive change that, mm. you know, people people have told us they would be on podcasts. Um, <laughs> and it, so it, it, there is a sequencing of events that is required in order to get to that point where good stuff can happen. Yes. But it feels like that if you can do that sequencing in the right order, that as you've said, there is, you know, the... the it's now going to make us sound very old but the generation below us and the generation below that mm. are far more values driven far more purpose driven yes. than our generation or the generation sort of above us and the cultural sector has a competitive advantage yes. that money cannot buy yes. you cannot fake having values you cannot fake purpose and so therefore it feels that there's actually quite an exciting opportunity for cultural organizations to be able to start to articulate that and again it feels like there's work to be done on that because it sort of feels that on the whole maybe there's too much of an assumption that people understand that cultural institutions are in inverted commas a good thing mm-hmm. um, but actually what does that mean how are you living that what is the actual tangible positive impact you're having on society but also it feels that there is a program of outreach and engagement that needs to happen to communicate to these talented people that the cultural sector is a place that you can come into and do good work yes with good people for good reasons yes but it feels like there's quite a disconnect there at the moment and i know that or i think that some of the work that you've done over the past five years has been involved in sort of engaging with startups engaging with bright young things again sounding really old yes because those people are not necessarily going to gravitate organically to the cultural sector yes and do you have any you know if we're in a we're in an optimistic positive mode at the moment this is an opportunity this is a great opportunity this is where culture trumps finance yes um how does that happen how do you engage with that cohort mm. in a way that attracts them yes. when as we've said the starting salaries you're talking like 10 percent probably yes. or, you know yes it's it's multiples less yes how do you have that conversation how do you where are those people you know how does how does culture insert itself into that conversation 
Um, so for the last few minutes, you and I have been saying things that make us feel sound very old, uh, and I certainly am. Uh, I'm privileged enough to have a younger brother. He was 23. Um, and so kind of get to glimpse through a small window into the world of that younger generation. And, um, uh, and indeed, my, my partner has a, a, a younger sibling as well of a similar age. Um, and my takeaway really from interacting uh, with people of that age is that they have no idea what they want to do. Um, and so how do you engage with the question being, how do you engage with those people? As got to be that the only thing that they know that they want to do is to make a difference, to uh, to uh, have a purpose in their work. And so I don't think that the conversation with that generation from the arts organisations is necessarily, has to be downstream of doing the work we've been talking about to be able to create the environment of... And it, uh, isn't it, is it Daniel Kahneman with Mastery, Autonomy and Purpose? Like, how do you build an environment where people succeed? So like, that can happen in parallel with the idea of starting to uh, speak to that generation of people about how all of the opportunities in this particular sector, in this particular company, are actually going to be um, driven by your values, which as you say, you can't fake and are important, and are actually driven by um, the organization's purpose, and that that's going to remain a kind of a, a north star for the work for as long as they work in that particular organization. Um, I think that, unfortunately, uh, no, 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 not unfortunately. I think that it is a truism that the types of people that gravitate to uh, what academically is called STEM, but let's call it kind of tech careers, um, and the kind of people that gravitate naturally towards jobs in arts and culture as a Venn diagram would not be a circle. Um, but I don't think that that is necessarily true of where the skills lie. I think it's the type of personalities that gravitate to the two things and not necessarily the types of skills. Um, and so finding that intersection of people who uh, who have the right technical skills, because at some point this does become about hiring people with technical skills, kind of downstream from the work that we've spoken about, um, and that intersection of people who are interested in um, uh, arts and cultures organisations, um, has kind of got to be a critical component of figuring out how you get to them. Now... I'm a lot older than them, um, and so I don't have a nice answer for you. Um, but you can interview my brother if you want, and he'll tell you. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think we probably both know people that that work with early career yeah. people. And I think if nothing else, you have to go to them. You cannot just sit here. You know, and yes. I, either with finance and go, you get paid a fantastic amount of money, or with culture and go, it's all very lovely. Yes, and assume that they will gravitate towards you because yes. they probably don't know you exist. Indeed, and they don't know you exist. And at the same time, uh, the influences, the teachers and the parents and the scholastic 
industries are probably trying to get them to gravitate towards things where um, it's about the money and it's about the concrete career trajectory rather than it actually being about um, purpose and values, which is what's driving them. So, yes, they don't know you exist. Even if they do know you exist, they don't know that you're hiring for those particular skill sets. And even if they do know that you're hiring for those particular skill sets, there's going to be various influences around them that are going to suggest that they should go and pick up Cordova Buck and going and working at Facebook. Um, there's a, a, a friend of mine who uh, has taught me everything I know about hiring for tech companies and early stage startups. Um, uh, a, a gentleman called Akitaha, who is uh, an absolute genius about it. Um, and I think is now consulting. Um, so like, hit him up, because he's brilliant. Um, uh, and one of the biggest takeaways from my time with, with him was that uh, you should take your recruitment practices and make them the responsibility of your marketing department and not your HR department. Uh, w which for some people sounds completely bizarre and for other people sounds like uh, like obvious activities, but maybe from the arts and culture organizations, kind of as we work through this logically during this podcast, kind of thinking of this as a marketing activity and as about a kind of funnel activity rather than necessarily thinking about it as an HR activity could be a good start. And finally, on that the question of, of change. Let's let's assume leadership have got it. Yep, we need to change. Um, they sort of understand where they're trying to get to. There is a weight of state. You know, carrying on business as usual, which is expected by audiences and by funders and by various other stakeholders. You know, cultural organisations in the UK have started to open again over the past week, which is wonderful, obviously. And there will be the expectation that they, you know, assuming we don't go into other pandemic roadblocks, that they will stay open and welcome in-person audiences back. And it feels that the the challenge for many of those organisations who have done digital stuff in various forms over the past year is how do they go back to welcoming audiences in person whilst continuing that digital stuff. And if we, I guess, zoom out a little bit and you've got, You've got your cohort of organisations that are committed to a program of transformation. Mm. How do you how do you ride the, both those horses at the same time? How do you continue doing the thing for which you are known that has got you to where you are? And how do you also <laughs> straddle the other thing, the new thing, which is going to get you to where you need to be? Is it a case of you know some of the bigger cultural institutions you've seen sort of innovation labs or lots of different. Uh, variations with all of which have the word lab in that have sort of tried to insert I guess innovation as a as a catalyst into the heart of the organization mm. I'm not convinced that any of those have worked mm. do is it about you know almost cu cultural institutions having sp spinning off separate companies that are sort of acting as a an external prompt for change is it about organizations creating it as a responsibility across every part of what they do. Do you have any sense of how change effectively happens once it's been decided that it should? Um, I have a few years experience in, in uh, large bureaucratic companies about how, what does and doesn't work, um, which maybe I can try and apply to the arts industry here. The, the short answer to your two questions are number one, uh, yes, labs don't work. Um, 
uh, let's not go down that rabbit hole, but I think we probably both agree why. Um, and number two, for the other options that you laid out, the answer is yes. Um, specifically, that there are some things that need to be functional disciplines. Um, and uh, the analogy I use here is that uh, there used to be a typing pool in, uh, in, in large companies of uh, predominantly women uh, who would do the typing. Um, but now that is a functional discipline, like the ability to use a computer is pretty much a functional discipline. And I think that some of these uh, areas which naturally end up gravitating into departments probably should be functional disciplines. In finance, it's data. Um, it may be the same in arts. Um, but kind of thinking about, thinking about that through a lens of looking back on yourself like five years down the line, kind of what is it that you need to end up being uh, something that everybody can do versus what is it that you want to be able to outsource to a department. Um, but then within finance, certainly, they have the industry has exactly the same problem that you outlined, which is that they have two businesses that they have to run side by side, which are effectively serving a similar outcome, sometimes a similar product, to very often the same person through two completely different businesses and completely different business models. And you get into very uh, yucky interdependent conversations around brand, uh, channel, uh, usage, identity ends up becoming a big component as well. And like this ends up becoming a multifaceted conversation around not just kind of technology components, but also around uh, values and purpose and vision, which thankfully in culture you uh, I, you have, whereas in finance, the, the 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 vision is make more money and the purpose is make more money and the values are money, money, money. So it's it's a little bit more difficult to do that. The and and over the last five years, I've developed this, and I, I this is probably something I've I've written extensively about this um, internally in in my organisations, and I really do believe that the answer to this question is that you need to create a separate entity a separate organization with a separate organizational structure and center design risk framework. No surprise I'm using those. Um, with the mandate to be ultimately competitive to the parent organization. But you need to do that in a way where you manage to find the balance between giving it the autonomy to compete, because very often 18 months down the line, and you see this with many of the labs that we're talking about, both in finance and also, I gather, from the arts, that... Uh, the most dangerous thing that an innovation department can be is successful because then the people who have ended up uh, either looking bad because it was successful or have ended up uh, having their revenue taken away because the other thing was more successful end up killing it because of personal incent individual incentives. So you need to give it the autonomy to be able to do that. But your parent organization needs uh, enough incentive to be able to be – their incentives need to be to be able to make that thing successful. And so you get into conversations around – uh, corporate structure and and how do you incentivize that? The model I'm working through at the moment with uh, an organization is uh, this idea that you copy what uh, Cisco did in the mid. Uh, Cisco is a large networking um, hardware company. Between the I think late 80s and early 2000s, they ran a spin-in methodology, uh, which is based on the idea that you take your two most entrepreneurial, bright, successful people and fire them. Uh, and <laughs> a big fan of that, and then give them some seed capital and an entity which they own, 
and then you, are they the, the, the entity that you've just created, then issues warrants back to the parent entity to allow it to purchase the entity at some multiple of ideally profit cash flow, but some kind of unfakeable metric of success at various gate points over the next three to five years. And so what's it cost you? Well, the individuals are taking the risk. You're not taking the risk. And you've lost a couple of people that actually, if you're an incumbent bureaucratic organization, probably didn't fit in there in the first place. It's cost you a small amount of startup capital. And to be honest, you know, nowadays you can build a tech company for 10, 20K, uh, or you can build it for 10, 20 million. And so the amount of capital is less important. But then by structuring this in the correct way, you've then made sure that if this thing is successful, you end up being able to buy it back in in a way that vastly incentivizes the individuals who've just left to start this uh, to do it because you buy it back off them. But you do it at such a level that you have uh, the first right of refusal to be able to buy it in. So it's not like somebody else can, can snap it up. But also the amount that you end up buying it for is a pittance about the value that that's going to bring back to the organization over the next 10, 15 years. So Cisco did this for a while. They stopped doing it. Uh, for reasons not to do with its success, but other uh, other cultural reasons in the organization. Um, but it feels to me, and I've, I've been through so many models, building them for some banks, advising them on the, for other banks, doing them for, for, for other organizations, about how you get that right between uh, autonomy, incentive alignment, risk. Um, and the closest thing that I've got to, which feels like it solves for all of the problems I've encountered previously, has been this very particular geeky technical implementation of Cisco's uh, Cisco's spin-in methodology of product innovation. And it feels like, as so many of these conversations do, that we've ended up at fundamentally a question of people. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that that is, you know, through all of the conversations that I've had for this podcast, that is what everything comes down to. It's not a question of buying this tool or learning this very specific programming language or partnering with, you know, this system provider. Mm. It comes down to people. It comes down to talent. It comes down to culture, which mm. is created by people. And yeah, I mean, it feels like we've, we've ended on opportunity. I do yes. feel that there is opportunity here. We've talked about the idea of existential threat, but I think within that, there is a huge opportunity here. And I think that that has been sketched out, hinted at for, for, for culture over the past, you know, almost a year and a half. And it would be a crying shame if that is squandered. Uh, yes. Uh, digital is an intentionally analog process and that is human in nature and if there's a lesson that we can learn from every other industry that's gone through what these industries and your industry is going through at the moment it is that the size of the opportunity is far bigger than any opportunity that has existed for the industry before to to a degree of becoming one of the top 100 most valuable companies in the world style of opportunity i mean the numbers uh, dwarf uh, dwarf anything else and so it's there for the taking and I would be absolutely delighted if culture and the arts was the first industry that took it for themselves rather than letting Silicon Valley take it from them
And that feels like a great moment to end on. Thank you so much, Drew. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Me too.